Well, hello out there in internet land. You are hearing my voice, the voice of Reverend Ryan Slifka, right now because we were having some major technical difficulties this past Sunday with our live stream, and we were unable to get audio for the podcast or YouTube. So this is me simply recording the sermon so you can listen to it or you can listen to it on YouTube. So let us begin. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So we're continuing our sermon series on the Psalms this week, the Psalms being more or less the songbook of the Bible, Jesus' hymn book, you could say. Uh, Last week, our guest preacher, Foster Freed, preached on a portion of the 119th Psalm, One downside of that psalm, Pot Foster pointed out, was its focus on just how great the singer of the psalm was at keeping God's commandments. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, sings the psalmist. And I am more than understanding than my teachers. I hold back my feet from every evil way. Like Foster, I have a little trouble saying these words, because if there's anything I don't need, it's more temptations to think highly of myself. It's basically ego waiting to happen. Today's psalm, however, swings us in the completely opposite direction. This week we've got Psalm 65, where last week the psalmist was extolling his or her own piety before the Lord. This week all the glory belongs to God. Where last week the focus on was on the righteousness of a single individual, this week's scope is massive beginning with the individual and the community to humanity and all of creation. And the subject is what God is up to in the world. It's kind of the opposite of ego, you could say. Now, to be clear, that doesn't avoid the individual, the personal. Rather, God's work in your life and mine is more the starting point. Praise is due to you, sings the psalmist. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. The psalm starts in a specific place, Mount Zion, the location of the Jerusalem temple, the holiest of holy places, the special place of encounter with Yahweh, the creator God, the place where heaven and earth intersect and come together. And what happens in the walls of Jerusalem, Zion, the heavenly city? Vows, we're told, are performed. This God answers prayer, at least hears them, depending on the translation. All flesh, in fact, can come to this God and pour out their hearts to the creator of the universe. And really, I mean, that, that is incredible. Like, what are we to the source of infinite galaxies that God should mind us, pay attention to a single word from us? But that's what the psalm says. But wait, there's more. When deeds of iniquity overwhelm us, the psalm proclaims, you forgive our transgressions. Or as another translation puts it, our crimes you atone. So not only does this God hear the prayer of tiny little creatures, this God actually sympathizes with them and with us, specifically in our faults and our failures. This God knows, understands our pain, our suffering, and our guilt. And this God, this God forgives. Of course, within the walls of the temple, they would have understood forgiveness as something processed through sacrifice, the sacrifice of animals, produce and the like but the people of jesus understand jesus himself as the new temple 
Jesus is the location where heaven and earth fully intersect. And forgiveness is something given once and for all by the self-sacrifice of God in his son on the cross. Same principle though, God sees us for what we truly are, broken, prone to wander, and wipes the slate clean rather than wiping us off the map. The end of the section, in fact, speaks of God's desire to draw us ever closer to her rather than to push us away. Happy are those whom you choose and bring to live in your courts, it says. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. This is an example of what we often call communion, unity, oneness with God. It's an image of longing that God longs to draw us closer in intimacy. This is one of the meanings of the incarnation of God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine. Jesus is the temple where heaven and earth intersect, and he points us to God's ultimate purpose, that in the words of the Apostle Paul, God will be all in all, so that every longing in us will be satisfied. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow little old you and little old me all of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, God's personal relationship with us tends to be easy for, say, those of us who identify as evangelical or Pentecostal or other kinds of so-called conservative Christians. For many of us who identify as liberal or progressive, though, it's not so much. This is a little difficult for us. And I'm reminded of an interview with the famed atheist Richard Dawkins, who admitted that perhaps there is an intelligence in the universe, but it doesn't go around answering prayers and forgiving sins. It's not really personal. Liberal or progressive Christians can be like Dawkins, who sees the universe as wondrous, perhaps even miraculous, but can't bring ourselves to believe in a creator who might know us or care about our individual lives. But this psalm suggests that this is in fact the case. Not only does this infinite God hear and care about the doings of little old you and little old me, this God is a God of infinite mercy. God knows our sin, our limitations, knows them personally in fact, and has dealt with them personally in Christ. And God longs to draw us each, each of us closer rather than push us away. So God is personal. That's good news. And if we miss this, we're missing a complete aspect about God, a total aspect about God, the big picture. But you know, God isn't only personal. Here's a weakness for evangelicals and conservatives. While it's true that Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior, God is also more than that. God is more than personal. God is a social Savior. God is social. So first we started with the individual in the temple. Next, the psalm pans outwards. Next, we get an image of God vis-a-vis all humanity. By awesome deeds, it continues. By awesome deeds, you answer us with deliverance, O God of our salvation. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but the awesome deeds referred to here in psalms like this one are God's miraculous works with God's people in the Old Testament. There's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. There's bread from heaven in the wilderness. There's water from a desert rock. There's crossing the river Jordan into the promised land, returning from exile in Babylon. In each case, God saved, God delivered God's people from oppression, from violence, from starvation, and from imprisonment and exile. You'll notice that this isn't just between God and the individual, but God's saving work is with 
It's with a group. It's with a community. It's with a people. And it's not just restricted to just God's people either. The psalmist says, you are the hope of all ends of the earth. The psalmist then proclaims God's power to set the mountains in place and that in the same way tsunamis are stilled, so is the, quote, tumult of the peoples, end quote. That God's in the business of settling societies in the same way God settles the sea, that in every nook and cranny of creation, inside every border and under every flag, human beings wake up and go to bed in awe of God's incredible deeds. God's saving work with God's people isn't exclusive to them or to us, but it's a sign for all people as to what is possible with God. Now, this is what liberals and progressives tend to excel at. God doesn't just care about the state of our individual souls. God's also about what, what, we, what we might call systemic issues. God's about the state of our common life. God cares about human suffering. God cares about justice for the oppressed and downtrodden, food for the hungry, clothing for the naked, housing for the homeless, help for the helpless. God cares about foreign policy, the relationship between states, both the wealthy ones and the weak ones. Democracies in totalitarian regimes, in war and in peace. He rules the world with truth and grace, as the Christmas carol goes, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love. God makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Jesus not only died for me, Jesus died for my neighbor too meaning that my salvation is bound up in my neighbors. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. From Ryan Slifka standing alone before the Lord in need of forgiveness, to the attic per perishing on the street, to millions of Uyghurs in slave labor camps, to millions of Ukrainians and Russians torn apart by violence and bloodshed, that's because the Christian hope is for all humanity. It's for the nations as much as it is for you. And for me, God is social as much as God is personal. God is personal and God is social. But there's also one other aspect of God's saving work, a crucial one that is often missed by conservatives and liberals alike, though not all of them. One of the major criticisms of the Bible, the church, the Christian message is this, that it is anthropocentric, anthropocentric, anthropocentric meaning human-centered or human-focused, to the exclusion of all other creatures in the rest of creation. An influential essay by the environmentalist Lynn White Jr. in the late 1960s more or less held Christianity and the Bible responsible for our ecological crises. God creates a world for humans to subdue, to use and discard as we like, with our true goal to leave this life behind, to be disembodied spirits in heaven. So, I mean, who cares about the Great Barrier Reef if it's just a stepping stone out of this world? Now, there have certainly been Christians who have thought this way and continue to think this way, no doubt about it. But the last section of this psalm tells us a different story. You visit the earth, sings the psalmist. You visit the earth and water it. I mean, I just love that imagery. God visits the earth. It's an obvious echo of the book of Genesis where God's just strolling through the Garden of Eden. And it's also an echo, a 
you know, points us towards uh, God visiting the earth in Christ, in a human being. But here God's more than strolling. God's got on gardening gloves and God's got out a, a watering can too. You greatly enrich the earth, it says. The river of God is overflowing. So God's growing wheat fields and soaking crops with sustenance, of course, you know, uh, not so much recently where we live. But one commentator here says that the psalm praises God as a sort of cosmic farmer. God's kind of a cosmic farmer. God's working the crops of creation, bringing life and fertility. But God, cosmic farmer is not the only job God has here. It says, you crown the year with your bounty. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. And the valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout together and sing for joy. So not only is God a cosmic farmer, God's apparently in the tailoring business too. Uh, the abundant produce, the sheep dotting the hillside, the enormous fall harvest. It's like in the old Disney movie, you know, where the birds and the mice all assemble Cinderella's gown for the ball. It's like that. God's clothes the earth, it says, all creation with abundance, with life, with joy, like a bride on her wedding day. And this is, of course, no accident. The book of Revelation at the end of the Bible speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, God dwelling among God's people and all of creation, like God dwells in the Jerusalem temple in our psalm. Because the end goal of the scriptures is not the escape from this world, but the redemption and the completion of creation, the eternal marriage of heaven and earth. So the Christian message is not only personal, it's not only social, but it's universal. It's cosmic from the tiniest cell to the greatest galaxy and everything in between. God is making all things new. So this psalm gives us the whole scope of God's involvement in our lives and our world. Whereas we tend to focus on one piece of the puzzle, God's invested in the whole picture. The thing is we tend to think too small, but God's concern is big. It's in the whole of life, all life. This psalm says that the God we meet in Jesus Christ has come to save you, to heal you and set you free you. I'm talking to you. It's not the royal you. It's not y'all. It is you. If anybody remembers uh, the late Glenn Jackson, a retired minister who attended St. George's seven or eight years ago, he always used to say that in the grand scheme of things, that you're a speck of dust on a speck of dust, but God would die for you. God is personal. God's business is healing you, the creator of the universe, you and your sins, you and your problems, you, you, you. But God doesn't just leave it at you either. This psalm also says that the God we meet in Jesus has come to save your neighbor too, to heal them and set them free. Faith can't be something just between us and God, but is lived out in love of neighbor. For the weak, the oppressed and downtrodden, God is social. God is social. The leaves on the tree of life, 
are for the healing of the nations. And finally, this psalm says that the God we meet in Jesus Christ is the Lord of all creation. One who isn't satisfied with just you or me or humanity alone, but blesses and has come for every speck of dust, every atom, every star in the sky, every bee, and every tree. In him and through him all things were made, and in him and through him every inch of our universe will one day be filled with the glory of God and take its place as the temple of the living Lord. So friends, praise the Lord who lives, dwells in Zion. Praise God who visits the earth to water it and forgives our transgressions. Praise God who by awesome deeds answers us with deliverance, personal, social, cosmic. The good news is good news for everyone, for you, for me, everything under the sun, and so much more. And for this, thanks be to God. Amen.